This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. If you're new today, we're glad you're here. Um, We actually think church should be joy. Joy in worship, joy in seeing God work in the lives of people so that their, their lives are changed. They testify. The Bible says over and over again, shout to the Lord with joy. Amen. And man, when, when we taste a little bit of this, is it not rich and great? It, it's beautiful. And I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey because I met a number of you who are here for the first or second or third time. Glad you're here. Our prayer when you come into this place is that you would know there is a God. He does love you. He does call you to follow his son, Jesus Christ. And that is the pathway to the greatest life you could ever have in this world. So wherever you are in your journey, some of you have known the Lord for a long time. Um, I I hope that these experiences where we see God working in the lives of other people just awaken our own faith as old as it is to say yes to Jesus whenever he says something to us. Because saying yes to Jesus is not something you do when you walk down the aisle as, you know, at one point and then your life is yours to live the way you want to. That's not the way a disciple lives. A disciple follows Jesus for life. And so, man, it's rich to be in church with you today. And to be honest with you, uh, if you're brand new, I want to give you a Bible that's in the seat where you are. You can have that if you need one. How many of you do have your Bible with you? Would you just give me a, a sign? Okay, that helps me a little bit. We study the Bible here. Because nobody on this staff team has much to say outside of what God has said. So we just try to open the Bible and say, what does God say? Can we get a glimpse at what God says? Some of the Bible is very easily apprehended. Other parts of it take really rigorous study. You happen to hit one of those weeks today. Are you excited about Melchizedek? I'll be honest with you, I've, I've struggled this week on how nerdy to be about <laughs> Melchizedek because it's complicated, it's complex, it's deep, it's profound. But if you will look at it in its depth, mining the complexities of Melchizedek does several things. Number one, It establishes the unity of the scriptures. That this is God's word, and it is the revelation of God that unfolds to us. And it's a unified revelation, and it doesn't contradict itself. It builds on itself. And the second thing that mining the complexities of Melchizedek does is it points to the superiority, again, 
of Jesus Christ as a priest beyond the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. In the book of Hebrews, the author is writing to a group of Jewish believers and close to believers, encouraging them to leave Judaism's rigid adherence to all of the Old Testament law and to embrace the one who fulfilled the law and satisfied all the sacrificial system. This chapter, chapter 7, is a further illumination of the insufficiency of the Levitical system as a priesthood to point to the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple things working against us as we open up the Bible to Hebrews chapter 7, if you want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 7. Number one is in our culture today in 2021, there is very little appreciation in our life for some of the dominant themes in the Bible. Some of the themes in the Bible point to sacrifice, blood sacrifice. And if you follow blood sacrifice of lambs and goats and bulls that are slain, and you talk to most people today, you know, when's the last you made a sacrifice? Sacrifice is not in our language that much, especially in the Bible sense, Levitical sense of the word. We don't have priests too much. Even Catholic and Episcopalian priests don't align that closely to um, the priests of Leviticus. Other themes, a temple, a holy of holies, a veil, um, a king. We don't have kings in America. Even in England, it is a constitutional monarch. And the queen, lover, respecter, doesn't have authority in the same way. Let me just put it this way. Jesus is not a constitutional monarch. (laughs) You with me on that? So some of the themes in the Bible, when we get to them, they don't align very well with our culture, so that's hard to work against. And the other thing that's hard to work against is that these are spiritual truths, and not everybody is open in their mind to spiritual truth. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In, the, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is a spiritual play in the minds of people that thwarts the ability to see Jesus as he really is. So we need the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And our text today is going to make Jesus look as great as he is. He is the king, he is the priest that exceeds all kings and all priests. And therefore he is to be worshipped, he is to be followed, he is to be submitted to, he is to be believed. In the context, the author of the book of Hebrews is arguing to Jews 
about the priesthood that they followed and an enigmatic figure of, in the Old Testament by the name of Melchizedek. We're going to get to it. I can explain in large measure many of the complexities of this chapter if you will stay till one o'clock. <laughs> Hearing no amens, <laughs> I'm going to tell you that I'm going to do my best to present to you the important things that you will need to follow up. But I'm not going to one, but I might go to 1101. <laughs> All right? Let me show you a chart. If you're writing in your Bible or in notes, I would encourage you to take this chart down. This is a, ch no, oh, let me go to one more verse. Because chapter 7, verse 25, what's the first word? Consequently. So that's chapter, that's verse 25 of chapter 7. Consequently. Everybody pay attention. The summary statement of chapter 7 is verse 25. 1 through 24 are his argument. Consequently, and we're going to get to that verse later. I just wanted you to see, you got to get through 1 through 24 to get to the punchline. All right? Now let me show you a chart. Here's a chart of your Bible, a rudimentary chart that is a timeline that will help you understand how Melchizedek shows up in your Bible. And you might want to just write this down, especially if you're a new Christian, find your way around the Bible, that this shows the chronology of people in the Bible who are important, who show up in the book of Hebrews, and it might just help you get the whole sweep of the Bible story. And when I said that the scriptures are unified, I mean that God is revealing himself from the beginning. So you'd go to 2000. This is rudimentary approximation in the zone of 2000 B.C. Abraham was called by God in Genesis chapter 11. And God made a promise to Abraham that I will bless the whole world through you. About 500 years, again, about 500 years later, Moses comes on the scene in 1500 B.C. And Moses um, is the next major character he's referred to in the book of Hebrews. About 500 years after Moses, Israel's king David is on the scene. King David was the second king of Israel, and he showed up there. And about a thousand years after David, Jesus came into the world, and he was the Son of God incarnate, and he lived on the earth. And then about 65 years after Jesus was there, the book of Hebrews was written. And about, I don't know, 1950 years after that, here we are in Boulder, Colorado, in this room, you. You get the flow? All right, next click shows the scriptures that align in some of these. Abraham, his life is recorded, and the story of Genesis 14 is the reference in the Old Testament that records this unique episode of a man by the name of Melchizedek. Moses is responsible for the first five books of your Old Testament, and particularly Moses gave the law and all of the prescriptions about the Levitical priesthood. In about 1000 BC, David wrote Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament by all the New Testament writers. So we should pay attention to that. 
It is also the second reference to this figure, Melchizedek. So Genesis 14, Psalm 110. Jesus went to the cross, Hebrews. Today we're in Hebrews chapter 7. And this is the whole explanation of Melchizedek. And then you, you just write down those verses. Those are my suggestions for you for meditation in light of today. When today's over, I hope you'll take those two verses and reflect on them. Okay? This is my introduction. Are there any questions? When All right. get started? Yeah, we're started. We're rolling. <laughs> All right, so this will help you have a, a quick glimpse. Now, because... Um, these, this character, Melchizedek, is mentioned only three times in the Bible, Genesis 14, Psalm 110, Hebrews chapter 7. We should look at Psalm 110 first, so that's where I want you to turn. Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, the psalm begins this way. You know where it's written now in relation to Hebrews. A thousand years early. Psalm 110. Let's read it out loud together. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now in your Bible, as you're looking at it, there's a little word above verse 1, and it gives an uh, attribution to who is the author. What does it say? A Psalm of David. King David. And David begins this psalm this way. The Lord, Yahweh, David speaking, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David says, Yahweh, God, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The author's David. This is Yahweh, the Lord God. So the question has been, who is this? Who is David's Lord? It's not David. It's not David speaking of himself. He's speaking of another in this text. And who he is speaking of is really important to understand because of the second statement the Lord is going to make in a moment in verse 4 to that person. So when Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand, God saying to some entity, David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, we got to understand what that is because the right hand of God is a place of incredible honor. Who can be at the right hand of God? which indicates equality and honor and majesty that someone could sit at the right hand of God himself. Who can be there? What's the answer? 
the Messiah Christ who was prophesied that he would come. So this is a messianic psalm of the Messiah who would come sit at the right hand of the Lord. The words that follow in verse 2 and 3, which won't be on the screen, simply says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Again, speaking to David's Lord, your people will offer them freely in that day, in the day of your power. There's battle language that Yahweh says to David's Lord, you're going to rule in power in that day. I just want you to know that the right hand of God is really important in the Bible. It's important because this theme from Psalm 110 of being at the right hand of God is taken up. In fact, in Mark chapter 12, just write this down, it says Jesus taught in the temple and he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Scriptures declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. So how is he David's son? The Messiah was to be in the line of David. He was to be David's son from human lineage, from Joseph. He was to be the son of David. Messiah would be. But if you only think of the Messiah as being the son of David, you're not thinking about the Messiah correctly or completely. Whose, other, who, whose else son is he, more importantly? is the son of God, so that God could say to his son, sit at my right hand, the place of honor. This idea of the right hand of God is taken up again and again in the Bible and referred to many times. Um, it, it is in Acts chapter 2, 34, when Peter says, um, David didn't ascend to the heavens, but David said through the Holy Spirit, Sit at my right hand, and it's quoted there. So whoever this Lord is, is greater than David. He's greater than angels. We've already seen. Write this down, Hebrews 1.13. For to which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? He didn't say that to the angels. Um, we, we could go on and on, but I, I need to stop there. You get the idea. Being at the right hand of God is a place of great honor. There's only one person who's there. It is the promised Messiah who's coming. Psalm 110 simply says that this person has a second word spoken of him in verse 4 of Psalm 10. And it says, again, the same Yahweh who said, sit at my right hand, the Lord has sworn and will not change. Here's the second oracle of Yahweh to David's Lord, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then if you read the verses that follow, it's all militaristic language. Again, you'd think that if he's going to sit at God's right hand until all the enemies are put under his footstool, like that's what a king and ruler does in dominion, now in verse 4, you'd think there'd be priestly activity, but there isn't. It's more military activity. I just want you to see that the second oracle that God says here is, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
you ask the question, well, you know, where, what, what's going on here? What you see in Psalm 110 is David saying about his Lord, the coming Messiah, is that he's going to rule over every enemy because he's going to be a king. And, verse 4, he's going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. You say, well, who's Melchizedek? But he's a king and a priest, whoever this, the Lord says to my Lord is, right? He's a king. Important that you get that. Psalm 110 is saying that the Messiah to come is both a king who will rule over his enemies, and he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So who's Melchizedek? Melchizedek, Genesis chapter 14. Think we're going to get it done by 1101? I'm hurrying. All right, Genesis 14. Genesis 14 is the first place chronologically that this unfolds, but it is in the context of warring kings that Melchizedek shows up and blesses Abraham. You'll have to read all of the chapter of Genesis 14, but there is a battle between two groups of kings. There are five kings against four kings, and these kings go after each and the aggressor is Cheddar Laemor. This is a good name for your next offspring. Cheddar Laemor. All right, so there's this battle, and Cheddar Laemor is the aggressor, and he comes after these other kings, and he attacks these other kings, and he takes the kings. But when we say kings, you should really think of them as um, like elevated mayors of towns. They're, not, they're small provinces that they rule over, like a mayor king of a small province. And they go and they do battle against each other, and they're a losing side. And in the losing side, verse 11, the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. So that's the cue. Abraham's now going to get connected because his nephew's been taken in this battle of the kings. So in the verses that follow, Abraham gets a group of together. Verse 14, when he heard his kingsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces, he went after them, and he pursued them. He went all the way up to Damascus, which is 100 miles to the north. You just think of these little armies chasing after each other, and Abraham gets his group, and he goes and he rescues Lot, and he gets all the provisions, and he brings them back, verse 16. He brought back all the possessions and brought them back to his kinsmen, with his kinsmen, Lot, and all his possessions. And after his return from the defeat of Cheddar Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet Abram in the valley of Shabbos. Now what's going to happen is the king of Sodom is going to come to Abraham and thank him for rescuing Lot and getting all their possessions back. And the king of Sodom is going to say to Abraham, here's the tribute that I want to give to you. And Abram refuses it. But you have Abram coming back from rescue the king of Sodom coming to Abraham about to exchange what would have been a normal tribute that would have been paid to Abram for his rescuing of the people of this king's little fiefdom. 
And verse 18, in the middle of this episode, some other king steps in before Abram and the king of Sodom, and he just interjects verse 18, 19, and 20, and it doesn't look like it fits at all. It's just sort of dropped in there when this is about to happen. And this is, this is what it says. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Who's still with me? Okay, so I just want you to know that like in the midst of this battle in the Old Testament, these three verses just interject something like you say, what is this here for? He wasn't even in the battle, but he slides over into the valley as Abram's about to meet the king of Sodom and, and transact their payment for what happened. And Melchizedek says to Abraham, you're blessed. Here's bread and wine just for provision. And blessed be you, the priest, Melchizedek, gives a blessing to Abraham. Now, honestly, you, you look here, and what is not spoken is what is going to be described here. His name is Melchizedek, and the real meaning in Hebrew for that is king of righteousness which we're going to see in a moment. He rules over what city, Melchizedek? Salem. Salam. Shalom. Get it? So he rules over Shalom, a city by the name of Shalom that may have eventually become known as Jeru, Shalom, before that. Don't know for sure. But he's the king of Shalom. And he's a priest to the Most High God. He's both a king and a It's key. All right, there's too much that we could get out, but I'm, I'm really close here. So I just want you to see a couple things. Abraham gives him a tithe of what he has. So what does Abraham think of Melchizedek? Who's greater? Melchizedek. That's the point. Is he didn't do anything for Salem in that fiefdom. But when Abram sees Melchizedek, this priest of the Most High God, Abram gives him a tithe. Because Abram recognizes Melchizedek is a priest and worthy of that. So Abram, Father Abraham gives him this tithe, recognizing him as a superior. And, as I said, Melchizedek is a, key, a priest and a king. Now, there's two explanations of Melchizedek in the history of the church. One is that he is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I don't think that's the case. Many do. We'll work that out. I think it was a real person. And what is said of that person, we're going to look at in chapter 7. My sermon begins now. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 7. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I won't do that to you. Just kidding. But please turn to, please turn to Romans 7, uh, Hebrews 7. And um, 
All that is necessary to get to why chapter 7 in Hebrews is difficult. But with that in the background, now you might read and understand that, again, the writer of Hebrews is trying to explain the order of Melchizedek, twice stated, once in 5, once in 6, now explained in 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of part of everything. Is that what happened? Yeah. So what's, what's the writer of Hebrews doing? He's exegeting the Genesis 14 text. He's just saying that that's what happened. And then... He is first, by translation of his name, king of, that's what Melchizedek means. And then he is also king of Salem, Shalom. He's king of peace, which, which is king of peace. The writer of Hebrews is just explaining that that's what Genesis 14 means. That's, that's what happened there. Now, this has thrown people off. Verse 3 says, for he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end life, but resemble the Son of God. <laughs> As a priest forever. See how great a man this is that he gave a tenth to of his spoils. Now, what's that? He's just saying, when you read Genesis 14, did you, were you introduced to Melchizedek's mother or father? No, it's silent. That's what some people say, well, that's why it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, but I don't think so. I think the scriptures are just silent. He probably had a father and mother, but it's not named in the text. And all the Jews that the writer of Hebrews was writing to knew that Melchizedek had no uh, attribution of mother or father, he was unnamed in genealogy. Now, anybody in the Bible who's anybody, it says of them they were begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, and the family line is really important, but with Melchizedek, there's no family line. No mother, no father, no he went to sleep with his fathers. None of that is spoken, and so it's as if he is an eternal, untimed, unmarked by ancestry, which is important for what's coming, in anything about Melchizedek, and see how great this man Melchizedek was, that Abraham would give to Melchizedek a tenth of his spoils. This Melchizedek is somebody. The author's indicating what is left out of the text, all these things that we've just said. So it's a little bit like he's an eternal priest who lives forever, but he's not. He's, he's a pattern of the reality that's coming in the eternal priest king Jesus that's going to be revealed. Now, verses 5 through 8, if you did stay till 1 o'clock, I would just tell you that those, that section is to indicate, if I could have the chart back up, Verses 5 through 10 indicate that Melchizedek is not a descendant of the Levitical kingdom, which occurred later. That's what 5 and 10 are simply saying. And they also reveal 
by what we already said, that Melchizedek is seen as superior to Abraham. Verse 11 now. And then we're back to the purpose of the message is to underscore that the Levitical priesthood is not adequate. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one out of the order of Aaron? If it was enough that priests were being generated through the tribe of Levi and the sons of Aaron, wouldn't that priesthood be sufficient to get the great high priest Messiah? But the point is, no, that was not a sufficient line through which our great high priest would come. The Levitical priesthood is not enough. We need something more. Verse 13, not on the screen, says for... Uh, let's see. Okay, I get it. It's getting hard now, right? You still with me? A few of you? Okay. I'm going to let you search out verses 13 and following. Um, be, because they, they just described that the tribe of Levi produced the Levitical priesthood, but Jesus didn't come from that tribe. He came from the tribe of Judah, and it's spoken of there. There is no ancestry for Melchizedek in the Levitical tribe. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. The Levitical priests did not take an oath to become priests. But this one was made an, a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and now we're quoting Psalm 110 again, the Lord has sworn to you, will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 22, everybody. This makes Jesus a guarantee of a better covenant. Okay, I think that's sufficient for today. You get the flow, right? Which brings us to verse 25. Because this is the consequently, and I'm just going to encourage you to kind of mine out some of the truths that we've had to quickly move to. The point of the author of Hebrews is to get to verse 25 and say, consequently, this high priest, who is also the king, who's going to put all the enemies under his feet. He is king and priest, and he does have an indestructible life. He is the son of God. He is eternal. He is able to save to the what? To the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen, this is the bread and butter of it. This is like, oh, this is why Jesus exceeds in superiority all of the Levitical system and any previous high priest because he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through faith in Christ since he ever lives to make intercession for us. Our high priest 
went through death and resurrection, went to God, to God's right hand. He is equal to God. He is face to face with God, and he is an intercessor there. What does that mean that Jesus is an intercessor there? It means he is praying to the one to whom he is looking, his Father, our Father in heaven. Jesus prays to the Father for who? You. He prays for you, and he's praying for you that you would know that you are saved by him. He's able to save those who draw near to him because he's always alive. He has entered not through the Holy of Holies, but through the veil, the Holy of Holies, through the heavens, to the right hand of God. He sits by the right hand of God, and there he intercedes on behalf of those he saves. Which means you can no longer save yourself or keep yourself saved Jesus saves you by his grace and prays you to be saved forever. He's praying for you all the time. He's praying for you right now. And, you know, we just, this is not a concept in our mind. We're whistling through life, going along our way. But do you know that Jesus is face to face with his Father at the place of prominence at the right hand of God, interceding for you, praying for you? Whew! No priest in any earthly system, can do that. We have a great high priest. What you can't miss, he's a priest and a... And we don't think about him as king, but he's coming king. He's coming king. And all of the things that Psalm 110 said, that he would come and rule and he would crush and he would bring righteousness and he would, um, in his wrath, make things right. He's that too. And that's why this one who is at the right hand of God will one day leave that right hand and come to earth and make all things right. He's going to do that because he is the one priest and king. Now, what are you going to do with that? Like, what is there to do except to draw that draw near is spoken in a tense that says, I draw near now with continuous action into the future. So if you do near to God when you think you received him as your savior, but you've been wandering your own way, I just want to say to you, be on guard. You need to come back to Jesus. He is at the right hand of God praying for you. When you drew near to him as, at 15, and now you're 40, 50, 70, and you're not near him, I just want you to hear what it says. You draw near to God. He's able to save you to the uttermost. You draw near. All right, I want you to bow your heads with me. <clears throat> Such a rich passage. I appreciate your patience as we work through it. I just hope you take away the consequently of it. What is the consequence of this to you? There is a king unlike any other king that has come before him. There is a king who's a priest, and he wants to rule in your life, and he wants to save you from your sins. He wants to be the one that you draw near to. What does that mean to draw near? It has to begin with you're just saying, Jesus, I now know who you are. Here I am. I come to you. 
I give you my life. Before the throne of God, I stand. And you're all I have. But wow, not only are you enough, you are awesome. Perfect king, perfect priest. And I'm yours by faith in Jesus. I just urge you right now where you are to draw near to Jesus. Open up your heart to him. Call on his name. Been away from him? Stop. Stop. Come back to the one who's praying for you right now. And Holy Father, I pray that you'll do your work in the hearts of all of us who are near you, who are far from you. Let us draw near and see you as you truly are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.